Good evening, ghouls and ghoulettes, and welcome to Killer Horror Critic, the podcast worth dying for. Hosted by the Killer Horror Critic himself, this is the show where guests from all over the horror spectrum join to talk about some of their favorite horror films. So get snugged under the covers, grab a cuddly puppy, and prepare for tonight's blood-curdling episode of Killer Horror Critic. Good evening, horror fans, and welcome to the first episode of Killer Horror Critic in 2022. We did it! We made it! We made it! I'm your host, Matt. And I'm Chris. And this is the podcast where my wife and I critique and argue over horror films like a couple of drunks at the bar. So maybe you never learn anything, maybe we never enlighten you, maybe we never give you a good scream, but hopefully you just have a good time listening. So, if that isn't a hint to what our theme is this month... (laughs) Uh, you all voted, and I'm not really surprised by the selection because not at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because you chose our theme for this month to be, uh, do you like scream movies? And I'm <laughs> telling you, it's gonna be a scream, babies. <laughs> uh, so so yes, we are talking about the entire scream franchise, uh, excluding the newest one. But we'll be talking about the first four films all this month. And so today, of course, we're kicking it off with the. 1996 original Scream. Uh, so this was, of course, directed by Wes Craven, who we all know and love. You know, Ew. did A Nightmare on Elm Street, Hills Have Eyes, People Under the Stairs, which I always like to mention because I think that movie's fucking brilliant. Yep. <laughs> uh, and it was written by Kevin Williamson, who uh, went on to do I Know What You Did Last Summer, The Faculty, and then oh, I. Oh shit. Mm-hmm, and then I just want to mention Cursed because, you know, werewolves. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but he he made just such a great career of just, you know, basically defining the horror genre of yeah. the 90s as well as, you know, kind of commentating while also evolving the genre. So, uh, so great work by Williamson. But anyway, and Scream is essentially, if you've never seen it or been under a rock for your entire life, um, <laughs> Scream is essentially uh, about a group of teens led by Sidney uh, Prescott, played by Nev Campbell, who find themselves being stalked and killed by... Uh, a killer who loves scary movies and is kind of basing their kills off some of that. So, <laughs> and that's the simple way of putting it. But this movie is actually much more complex than I think a simple plot synopsis could ever give it. So, so fucking complex. So we are going to spoil everything about this film. So if you have not seen it, of course, recommend checking it out before this. Uh, I believe you can find it streaming on Peacock. Uh, but it's also well, well, well worth the rental. I, I this yes. is probably this is pr- it, it, this is probably my most recommended of anything we've ever talked about on here. That if you <laughs> haven't seen it, go rent it. <laughs> I feel like this is a necessity. Like if you're a horror fan, you have to watch Scream. I mean, I don't necessarily believe in that kind of stuff. Of yeah. like, if you're a horror, like you can't be a horror fan if you haven't seen this. I know oh, that's not, not that. I know that's not what you're saying, but you know, but but I I don't necessarily agree. Of like, if you're gonna be a horror fan, like you gotta see this because. Yeah, we all have our own things, you know, but I do agree that, like, this is one of the quintessential horror films, you know, so if you have not seen it, it is well worth checking it out, you know. So we are going to be spoiling it, so check it out on streaming if you can, otherwise go rent it, and other than that, we have our usual spoiler-free content that we'll do before that, so we'll let you know we're getting into spoilers. But, so as usual, uh, we got a few releases for this week. Actually, two of these are from last week, you know, since we kind of changed our schedule, I didn't get to mention those. And I actually 
think they're a little more exciting than some of what's releasing this week. So <laughs> Matt just wants to make sure you don't miss out. Exactly. I want to make sure you don't miss out on the good stuff, right? Yeah. So, uh, so first up is a film called See For Me, uh, which you can now find on VOD. I caught this film at a festival not too long ago, and it's basically kind of like a modern take on the film on the Audrey Hepburn film Wait Until Dark, which if you've never seen that, highly recommend it. It's great. Uh, but this film, See For Me, is about a a uh, teen girl who is blind after an accident and she does like house sitting for pets right and it, so she goes to house sit at this house and happens to be there uh after a bunch of criminals break in and are looking for something in the house and then it's kind of like up to her this blind girl to you know stop them and get out alive and that kind of stuff so oh, shit. <laughs> and then and then meanwhile the kind of sort of twist on it is that uh, she ends up using an app called see for me which basically connects her to someone else in the world who can see through her phone and like tells her like where to move to and go so this person ends up kind of helping her navigate this situation so that sounds <laughs> fucking awesome it you know it has its flaws it, it wasn't a perfect movie but i do <laughs> really appreciate what it's trying i thought that it's a great concept. I love the actors in the film. I think they all do a great job. And it, it, what's most interesting about it is that it really plays with morality because our lead character isn't exactly the nicest, most <laughs> morally straight person, right? So, <laughs> uh, so it's kind of fun how the film toys around with that a bit. But, uh, but this one I did enjoy, and it's a neat concept, so I do recommend checking it out. I don't think that it fully uses the or i don't think that it uses the concept to its full potential you know and it gets a little gamey at some points but <laughs> but but it is a fun movie and also go see wait until dark i'm telling you it's one of hepburn's best i love it <laughs> but anyway so there's that and then another film is called the wasteland and this is now on netflix and this is essentially about a mother and son who are left on the frontier by themselves uh, after I believe the husband goes off to do whatever I forget but they're left to fend for themselves and there's this legend of like some kind of monster and then the mother begins believing that she's seeing this monster and it's all kind of told from the child's point of view so it kind of oh. becomes it sort of becomes like I don't necessarily want to compare it to the Babadook because it's not quite like that mm -hmm. but it's almost it, it's similar in the sense that it becomes a sort of story of being told from this child's point of view of is the mother crazy or is she actually seen a monster you know and so it's this really kind of uh sort of spooky you know isolated on the frontier psychological horror film and i won't say anything more than that but i did just recently watch this i enjoyed it so i do recommend checking it out and then lastly of course the new scream uh, is releasing in theaters on the 14th so that'll be out you know this friday after you're listening to this but and, you know, I'm not even going to get into the plot because we don't really know much about the plot mm -hmm. unless you've seen the movie. And I'm not reading reviews at this point because I don't want anything spoiled for me. No spoilers. <laughs> and I'm really pissed that it's not releasing on Paramount Plus because I don't want to go to the theater right now to see it. <laughs> and I just know that social media is going to ruin everything. So. <laughs> um, you got to be like me. You have to be a hermit. I can't be a hermit, though, Chris. <laughs> I have to be on the webs. <laughs> Um, it does but so anyway so if if you are feeling comfortable with theaters and if they're actually open by where you are because i know a lot of places that are closing right now but if you do feel comfortable with all that scream will be in theaters this weekend and so you know you can check that out there i'm super excited for it i yeah. i think i think that you know it's from the same team 
that did Ready or Not. I think <gasps> they did a fantastic job with that movie. I think they're going to do a phenomenal job with this. Hell yeah. Every, I haven't read any reviews, like I said, but every single comment I've seen from people who have seen it or people that I've talked to have loved it. And I, and I have friends that have seen it that are just absolutely like over the mood about it. You know, they all think that it's a really great sequel. And I've heard the quote that Wes would be proud frequently. So, <laughs> uh, so hopefully that is the case. But anyway, so those are our releases for the week. And then those of you who have listened to us for a while, you know that we usually do our audience poll and reaction uh, right now. But uh, but beginning today, we are going to start doing that at the end of the show. You know, this is sort of for those who just want us to get right to the movie and <laughs> and get into spoilers and all that kind of stuff. So, and also, you know, it's a little suspense maybe for you to find out like what the poll results were. And <laughs> I don't think and, it's gonna be hard. To oh, not for this one, yeah. yeah. But <laughs> uh, but anyway, so that will be at the end of the show. So don't worry, we still have your poll. We still have the comments, but we're gonna get to that at the end. Uh, so one last thing we like to do before we get into spoilers then is the tagline versus the film and what we think of Scream overall. So. The tagline for Scream was, Someone has taken their love of scary movies one step too far. Solving this mystery is going to be murder. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you think of the tagline? What do you think of Scream overall? (laughs) That's a a fucking long tagline. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, It's like a little paragraph. Um, No, I think that tagline works really well for the movie. And look, for me with Scream, this is my second favorite franchise. Because obviously Jason's number one. Obviously. And always will be. Mm -hmm. But Scream is my second favorite. And actually, I loved the Scream franchise before I even really met Jason. Yeah, Um, well, well, you came, you know. I came to horror late. Well, it's not, I mean, yeah, you came to horror late, but... (laughs) But you, but 1996, you know, that was right around the time that, you know, you would have just been like just preteen, I think, right? Yeah. So I, I saw this one at a slumber party, which mm. I think is outside of the movie theaters. One of the best ways to watch a screen film is at a slumber party. I think it's, I think it's one of the best ways to discover a horror movie. You yeah. know, like, a, and unfortunately for me, you know, a lot of my friends didn't really do horror movies and sleepovers. I had to be the one to, <laughs> you know, introduce them, but. But no, I always thought that was one of the best ways to see this because it's like kind of having your own mini theater crowd, but at home. <laughs> exactly. And like my friend groups up until like high school were never super into horror. So this is me watching it in middle school with a bunch of girls who didn't watch horror a lot. So we're screaming and yelling. And like I just fucking love this movie and this whole franchise so much. And I'm so excited that we get to talk about it. Yeah, no, me too. It, you know, it's I mean, look, this franchise changed everything. Yeah. You know, like it, it really did. And it, I, I, you know, I often wonder, I often, for, for me, Scream is so important because it was my first experience of kind of getting to watch a franchise develop, mm-hmm. you know, uh, because, you know, I, I was born in 1987, aging myself here, but... <laughs> Uh, but I was born in 87, and, you know, so that that was at a time where all of, you know, most of the major horror franchises that we love uh, ha- had already begun, you know, Nightmare yeah. on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Halloween, like, all, all that stuff was already over a decade old, for, for the most part, right? And Scream was kind of the first one that I got to be there for the birth of, and, and to just watch it, you know, not, not just itself change over time mm-hmm. and become more relevant to the culture but also just kind of see how it itself impacted the genre and changed things, you know. And unfortunately, I, I, and we'll talk about this later, 
unfortunately, I do think Scream ha- briefly had a negative impact on the genre. It's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag, but 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 in the end, I think it did actually make things better. So <laughs> we'll we'll get to all that. But but no, for for me, Scream is just such an incredible film, and it's it's one of those. It's just one of those stories that you know are are so common in the industry, which is that it, it was a lightning in a bottle kind of thing, where it so easily could not have happened, it so easily could not have been the film that it is, and we're all lucky enough that everything fell into place the way that it did for it to become the film that we got, you know. So like, for some of you that don't know, you know, Scream was one of those films that a lot of people just didn't really get but it's really interesting you know so so kevin williams you know wrote the script he basically did it over a weekend right uh like yeah as far as i can remember he he like went out to a cabin and just wrote the entire thing in a weekend and supposedly around the same time also you know ended up outlining the sequels as well (laughs) or parts two and three I, i don't think four was included at the time but but, you know, he wrote this in a weekend, and it, it, he's one of those stories as well that's just really inspiring because, you know, he he was trying to become a writer, and it wasn't really working out, and he just happened to be lucky, I think, where he was dog-sitting for somebody and happened to, uh, and, and I could be remembering this incorrectly, but I think uh, I think the owner or whatever, or one of his friends who got him into it, uh, basically, they, they knew people, and so he managed nice. to get his script to them, and, and they passed it around, and Scream ended up being involved in this huge bidding war over one weekend where just everyone wanted it. But the thing was, they had trouble finding a director because, you know, and and they tried a lot of people, like a lot of big-name directors, uh, including Robert Rodriguez, I think. And what was going on, and and George Romero, too, I think, and and what ended up happening is a lot of the directors, I think, didn't really understand that Scream wasn't a comedy, (laughs) you know, because because when when you look at the film and when you read the script... You know, it does have a lot of comedic elements in a sense. Yeah. It is, it, it and and it, it it's doing this thing where it feels like it's making fun of the horror genre, but but that's not really the case. It's a love letter. It, it it's a love letter, but it's also, to me, it's also kind of. You know how like when you love something, you're also allowed to criticize it because yeah. you want it to be better, mm-hmm. right? You know that that's kind of what Scream is to me. It's not it's not insulting the horror genre, but what it is doing is it's asking for better in certain places, right? Yeah, pointing out and, some of its flaws. Yeah, and so so you know a lot of directors just didn't really get that, and I think maybe they felt it was either too comedic or that it was kind of like an insult to the genre. And Wes Craven was kind of like he, he was that director who got it, you know, like he like he understood. It's scary. It's meant to be a horror film. And, you know, there's a great line that he has during the commentary uh, that that so many films seem to forget, which is it's not he says something like it's not funny when people are dying. You know, so mm. so when you watch Scream, all of the kills are taken very seriously. And they're, they're intense kills. They're intense. They're taken very seriously. There are no there are no wink and nods and you're supposed to like laugh here. You know, mm-hmm. like it's all meant to be taken very seriously. And everything in between that, the tension is where he finds places for you to laugh. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the best time for you to laugh because it kind of it eases you up a little bit so that it can hit you harder when the <laughs> when the good scares do come. Right. Um, so he got that about it, and you know I, I could probably just rant about this forever, so <laughs> and just my feelings on why I love the movie. But you know I'll just end with saying like I, I think this film has, uh, and Chris and I I think both think this, 
has the greatest opening scene in horror of all time. Yes, uh, I will fight anybody on that. Yeah, Kevin Williamson himself says that the opening scene is a homage to When a Stranger Calls, which to me is like, you know, on my top five list of greatest horror openings of all time. And so <laughs> it's incredible that he managed to take that and do it one better. <laughs> but but it's one of the best openings. I, I, I think that the idea of a killer using a cell phone, which was new at the time, you know, it feels like so innocuous right now right mm. but back in 1996 cell phones still weren't totally common not everyone had one right yeah and and that was kind of like the one of the new things about the film at the time was you know we had had the thing like uh the killer is calling from inside the house but we what, what we didn't have is the killer can be calling from anywhere, anywhere around the house you know like we never we never had that we never had the killer can be calling from your front porch right yeah or, or your closet or something like that so I'm kind of going on a rant here, but <laughs> <laughs> I just love this movie so much. But uh, one last thing I want to point out, cause, just because I think it's funny, is that the original title for the script was actually Scary Movie. Oh, my and, God. <laughs> <laughs> and I just think that's so hilarious that, you know, the franchise that ended up beginning as sort of making fun of Scream mm -hmm. was Scary Movie, the <laughs> franchise. <laughs> and I just love that it was originally titled that. <laughs> Do you think they chose that name on purpose? Because they knew it was the original name for oh, Scream? Oh, 100%. Okay. I, I, I would be surprised <laughs> if that was not the case. Um, but, but yeah, and then it was eventually changed to Scream, which I do think is a much better title. <laughs> <laughs> but all right, so we are going to get into spoilers now. So again, if you have not seen Scream, please go do so. Do not want to spoil this film for you. No. Of all the films I don't want to spoil for you, it's Scream. So, yep. <laughs> uh, so do go check it out. Uh, otherwise, we're going to get into spoiler territory now. So I think the first thing that... I want to talk about because it's a pinnacle of the movie and one of the major commentaries on the genre is Sydney and Billy's relationship. <laughs> you say, Oh, why, why uh, do you say, Oh, right away? <laughs> so I, cause it's a gross relationship. It's a bad relationship. But what I think that scream is doing so wonderfully here is the insidiousness relationship between, you know, Sydney and Billy comes from the fact that it's so normal. It's so normal. We've we've all either like been in relationships like that. We've known people in relationships like that where it's not necessarily like a bad relationship. It's not like Billy's hitting her or like anything like that. It's mm. just like this subtle pressure that he puts on her that he always tries to like walk back. Like the first time we meet Billy is like he's breaking through well, he's breaking into Sydney's house through her window, which is normally a romantic gesture. Uh huh. Which also is something that Wes Craven did with Johnny Depp in Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> yeah, but nobody minds Johnny Depp breaking into their window in the 80s. Hey, Skate Ulrich was not exactly a bad looking dude either. So. He is a creepy <laughs> motherfucker. He's creepy. Come on, he's creepy, he but he's a fucking. He looks like a killer. I, I disagree. <laughs> I, I mean, look, but that's, but that's part of Skeet's acting ability, right? Is yeah. Because he. Look, I mean, if you just saw that dude on the street, you're like, man, that's a hot dude. But you know, <laughs> but Skeet, but Skeet has, but Skeet has that ability to to inject some of that sinister yes. kind of personality into it. I mean, that's one of the brilliant things with his performance is like, if you really, really watch Skeet Ulrich during this film, he's great at at, at hopping back and forth between. You kind of feel like maybe he is sincere, maybe maybe he is hurt, like maybe he does. <laughs> You know, maybe there is like some human emotion going on underneath there. Really? But then, well, yeah. But then you re like a perfect example mm -hmm. is when he is in the police station after Sydney's accused him of being the killer, uh -huh. and he looks back at her 
and it, the look on his face is heartbroken, you know, and, and like right. you can and like you can hate his character and all mm-hmm. you want and not have any sympathy for him there. That's fine. But but Skeet does a great job of having this heartbroken look on his face to make Sydney feel guilty. Yes. You know, and, and that's the thing with him is he he's such he does such a good job of playing the innocent boy next door, but then injects these really sinister uh, looks and tones and movements, you know, like yeah. when he leans close into her when she accuses him of potentially being the killer, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, he does all these things that just, you know, make you suspect him, but at the same time, you're like, but can he really be the killer? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think for me, from, like, moment one, I was like, fuck this guy. <laughs> but it's it's because, to your point, he does such But it's a, on purpose. <laughs> it's on purpose. He does such a good job with kind of, you know, showcasing kind of these more insidious notes that happen. Like, look, horror films, we have so many shitty boyfriends. We have so many shitty boyfriends, but with Billy, it's different. Shitty boyfriend, the horror film. <laughs> <laughs> well, and normally they all get killed off, and we feel cathartic because the shitty boyfriend died. Mm. And it's usually because they cheated or they talked down to their girlfriend. But or they had sex. Or they had sex. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the brilliant thing that they do with Billy is the fact that they kind of, he showcases pushing his own agenda. He wants to have sex with Sydney. He really doesn't give a fuck about her boundaries or what she's feeling, but he wants to at least present that he's the good boyfriend like he has that line again going back to that first bedroom scene where he's kind of come in and been like hey so i was thinking about the fact that we haven't had sex anymore Mm. like the fact that we haven't we used to be hot and heavy and then your mom died and now we're not but then he follows that up later by going look i'm really not trying to pressure you about the sex thing so he does this really good job of showcasing that kind of relationship so this is part of the brilliance of scream Mm -hmm. is that everything is a red herring yes. and and everything is is a red herring for the other red herrings like basically <laughs> or, or basically what i mean is we got that, a school of red herrings well well i mean if like if you do really watch this movie like mm. everything right down to the shoes people are wearing to to look the like shoes yeah like i think uh i if i remember right uh, watching the commentary i think that the shoes that the sheriff is wearing I think are meant to look kind of like the killer's boots in the bathroom scene or something, right? So, oh, okay. so it's like literally everything mm-hmm. is meant to throw you off, right? And so I think one of the brilliant elements of Scream and of Billy's, you know, quote unquote motivations mm-hmm. is that we're because because Billy and Stu present this so much as they they're telling everyone that this is a movie right and they're mm. following movie rules and and you know and they're and they're trying to present this like it's all one big movie as billy says mm-hmm. um because they say all of that on one hand and because uh billy you know accuses or billy basically says one of his motivations is that sydney's mother you know was fucking his dad and that's mm-hmm. why his dad left uh, that's or, or that's left. why his mom left sorry he he's basically they're throwing us off the track of what Billy's real reasoning here is, and it's in our and it's in our faces the entire time. Is that you know by by presenting this as it's a horror film and using the mother as an excuse, Billy is basically presenting to us, the audience, really this concept that well, he doesn't actually really want to have sex with Sydney. He wants to take that. Uh, virginity away from her mm-hmm. so that she can then not be the final girl <laughs> and 
you know it's basically like yeah. it's basically like presenting this idea of like she's going to transcend or whatever you want to call it uh into this other version of herself by sleeping with him but at the end of the day what what is really going on is billy really is just a fucking shitty Horny white boy dude. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's basically just a shitty pathetic white boy yeah. who is pissed off that his girlfriend won't fuck him. Yes. And that's his and that basically becomes his entire reason for <laughs> going on a murder spree. I mean and, and it's and it's and the whole film really is just a a comment on that because, you know, that sort of male toxicity was mm-hmm. becoming more and more prevalent or acknowledged in in our culture at the time. Yeah. And and to me, this is kind of a response to that, is just how you have like these privileged white dudes like Billy mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, who just get so pissed off because their girlfriend won't fuck them or whatever. They, they you know? kill people. <laughs> right, exactly. And, that, and, and, you know, and it's this commentary on like a very real violence that women face, right? So, yeah. Well, and I think this was brilliant, especially in the 90s, because the 90s is really where we saw, I feel like, a lot more of this, this pressure kind of taking off. And I think on the reverse, like looking at Sydney and her side of it, you hmm. know, Sydney, before the movie even starts, has been through a horrible tragedy. And it's it's interesting because I think from Sydney's perspective, she fucking knows Billy's a piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, she knows that the dude that she's dating is not a good person who doesn't respect her. But A, this is the 90s. And B, I think that she is very much trying to hold on to some semblance of normalcy. Her whole life got uprooted and is still uprooted. And Billy's kind of the only thing from before her mom died that... I think she's trying to hold on to that hasn't changed. But then we get this really interesting conversation between her and Tatum in the grocery store. Mm. That I think is great where they're talking about her, her sexuality and stuff like that. And I fucking love Tatum because she has a line in there of like, okay, so you're still, it's something along the lines of like, so you're still a little chilly because your mom got murdered. That's totally okay. You're going to thaw out. And Cindy's response to that is just like, you know, but he's been so patient with all the sex mm. stuff. How many boyfriends would put up with a girlfriend who's sexually anorexic? Which makes me gag every time I hear that <laughs> line. And Tatum's response is, "He doesn't deserve you." And I love yeah. hearing that that kind well, of dialogue. Well, it's such a you know, a- and look, I mean, this is just one of the many many things that speaks to how just well written Williamson's script is, right? Because mm-hmm. you know, this is. This is an evolution, really, yeah. for horror at this time. And, like, that sounds so stupid to say, right? Because because you're like, it's 1996. Of course, you know, this is a concept that, like, shouldn't be new, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, but it is at the time. Like, yeah. in, in the horror genre, you know, if you look back through the past, it's not that there aren't exceptions, but for the most part, the general kind of rule is that, you know, you do have these shitty dudes like Billy, mm-hmm. but they're always either sort of portrayed as like not really being the bad guy mm-hmm. or like you have countless films like for example one film we talked on here earlier in the summer i think the burning where it's like you have <laughs> you know you have in situations where this dude like tries to you know rape a woman or, or like push her past her boundaries or whatever mm-hmm. and then it, she of course is like fuck you no and then he's like oh you bitch and he runs away like billy but then she's the one who dies yeah. and, it, and it's kind of you know and it's sort of like oh it's it, it's she's guilty of something and scream was kind of this movie that's like no 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 w- women should be allowed to say no yeah. you know they, they should be allowed to have that and and the the incorrect response is Billy's <laughs> response, right? Yeah. And Tatum especially is a great character because she's kind of embodying your sort of like 
uh, stereotypical uh, cheerleader, you know, character in slasher films. Mm-hmm. Yet she's so different because she's the one who's like, no, fuck that guy. Yeah. You know, he doesn't deserve you. You and and she she's dead on like what's going on with Sydney, right? Mm-hmm. And, and she's so like intuitive, and that's and that's just so the opposite of what you ever saw from that character. <laughs> yeah, well, think about how many like best girlfriends we've had in horror films that add on the pressure to the virgin character who tell the virgin character, yeah, you just need to fuck your boyfriend. I can't believe you haven't fucked your boyfriend yet. That is... Right. Yeah, is, exactly. Yeah, that's a pressure <laughs> That was such a huge thing in the 80s of like, oh, it's, it's just sex. Just have sex. Like, yeah, just have sex. They're just like... Put, they're, they're partially responsible for the trauma because they just keep pushing them towards it. <laughs> yeah, and so to have a character like Tatum, who I don't think we've mentioned is played by the amazing Rose McGowan. No. I am... Well, I, I think, if I remember correctly, she's a bit of a trumper now, but... <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> I, could, I could be wrong. I could okay, be thinking never of someone mind. else, but... No. <laughs> Not amazing, but she is pretty great in horror films. I, you know, I'll give her this. Uh, she really loves Scream, so you know, shout out to her for there, that. But there's that. Okay. Um, but look, so so I want to move on from this. But one last thing I'll say on it is that so so something that's really interesting too about the whole uh, sexual dynamics uh, of their relationship and of the themes in the film is that I, I really really we don't talk about production design enough. Uh, really, in anywhere in film criticism, I think oh. it, it gets so often overlooked, but. Uh, but I really want to mention production designer Bruce Allen Miller because I think that he did a phenomenal job in this movie. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it relates to Sydney because when we first meet Sydney and, and you kind of look at the design of her room, it's it's very typical to like your your final girl character, right? You know, it's it's all pink walls and flower portraits and just everything is very boy girly. band posters boy band posters everything's very girly and innocent and it, you know all this kind of stuff and and this and our introduction to her in that scene when we see her room is when billy's coming in and he's making the whole speech about like you know we're, we're edited for television mm-hmm. and he very this is very odd to me but but also you know pretty apt uh, uh usage for this film is that he of all films that could be referenced here, it's The Exorcist, <laughs> and he and he's talking about The Exorcist being edited for television. Uh-huh. And what's so wild about that is that when you really consider what The Exorcist is, The Exorcist is a film that's all about an innocent girl whose body is just completely ravaged. Oh shit! Uh, by by a demonic force, right? You know, mm. all, all the way to the point where she is literally like fucking herself with the crucifix at one point i know horrible image but like (laughs) but but it just it's it's very purposeful i think that billy references that because that movie's all about the destruction of innocence yeah right so anyway so so you have all these kind of dynamics going on in that scene in the midst of this like very girly pink you know everything's innocent kind of room Mm -hmm. and then where sydney actually loses her virginity is not just you know in Stu's parents room but if you really observe that it's boring. Yeah. You know, the the room is all like brown and bland and there's nothing really that stands out about it and mm-hmm. it just to and then even after the the sex with Billy, right? Like it Sydney seems very like all right, you know, like yeah. it's, and, and to me it's just sort of a it's sort of a play on how like, you know, horror films and, and even our society sex and and virginity are played up so much like there, there's such an importance placed on it, right? Yeah. To, to the point where it's almost it, it's almost presented like oh it's this like magical uh <laughs> life changing event or whatever mm-hmm. and, and whatnot and and i just love how it's presented in that scene in Stu's room be, or in Stu's parents room because it's like 
you know, th the blandness of the setting and then it, Sydney's own reaction are almost as if to say, like, oh, that was it. Yeah. You know, it's and, not and that it, big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. There's no and, and it's also kind of saying, like, you know, there's no there's nothing special about being a virgin in a horror movie. You know, mm -hmm. like it's like it's kind of it's kind of beating down that concept of like virginity and innocence and horror is what makes you survive like yeah sydney is a uh, is a uh, a uh, uh, fucking punch or sydney <laughs> is basically like the complete opposite of that like she's she's crushing that idea because because yeah. you know that whole thing is saying there's nothing transcendent about having sex it doesn't suddenly make you a hero it doesn't suddenly you know change you into this like completely different person right no. it's just sex, it's just sex. And, and and that's to me what the whole scene's about is that it's just sex. Yeah. And there and Cindy has not suddenly, you know, evolved into like some <laughs> greater being or some lesser being because she's done it. Yeah. And and but it also kind of speaks to like the blandness of it of like, <laughs> oh, this is adulthood. This is what I've been afraid of the whole time. It's nothing. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Can I just say my favorite part of that scene is that they're they're linking it up with them watching the horror film down in the living room. And so we get that moment where they're watching Halloween and Randy goes, Okay, and here's the obligatory tit shot. And then it cuts to the sex scene as Sydney's taking off her top, and then Billy moves in front of the camera, so we <laughs> don't get the tit shot. And I, this is so fucking brilliant. Oh, it's great, and and of course that's intentional. Yeah. You know, I I think Wes even says himself on a commentary that um that they purposely do that because you set up, the, or maybe it was Kevin Williams who said that, but they they purposely set it up so that like you have certain expectations from watching a horror movie. And then Scream in particular is like everything you think we're going to do, we're not going to do. Yeah. You know, like every single time you think you know what's going to happen or you think you know what you're going to see, it does something different. So Yeah, Scream's <laughs> just like, we do not owe you tits. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess. But <laughs> but but so so one other thing I want to add to this is that, you know, so we, we've got Sydney and Billy's relationship. Mm -hmm. And it's why I love that the whole dynamic between between Dewey, played by David Arquette, and, and Gail Weathers, played by Courtney Cox, I, I, why I love that their whole dynamic is kind of included and expanded on because they they do have like you know a, a bit more a bit more presence in this film than you typically see with these kind of side characters, right? Mm -hmm. And and I love that it's included because to me, and I don't know that it's intentional, but to me. Uh, the inclusion of their kind of dynamic and relationship forming when you contrast it with Sydney and Billy, it, it's almost as if the it's almost as if the film is saying this is what a actually like healthy uh, romantic relationship looks like. But Gail's and using him. But the point well, <laughs> yes, she is, because that's just who she is as a person at first. But but as it goes on, Gail's like falling for him because right. the, the why why part of why I love Gail is she's another she's another atypical character where like she she represents something that you think you know you know that this heartless bitchy whatever reporter who just mm -hmm. wants the story and a lot of her is that at first, but you end up kind of realizing like Gail is still a person she has yeah. she has a heart and she has feelings and you know all this mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And so she's not the stereotypical character that you think she is. So, so I love watching their relationship form because even though it starts with Gail, you know, potentially using Dewey and whatever, it does actually form into something that is really, truly, you know, romantic and intimate and nice, so mm -hmm. to speak, right? And it's just such a nice contrast to, 
what's going on with Billy and Sydney because every one of their reactions is toxic and negative and yeah. and you can and you can feel it like every every time Billy's commenting, you know, on on Sydney and sex, like you just you you it's cringe, gross. right? And, and you don't really cringe at, at Dewey and Gail. You're no. kind of like, oh, this is like sweet. It's nice. Yeah, they're cute. <laughs> I'll give you that. They're cute. Yeah. Right. Like Dewey. Like Dewey is kind of, sort of, uh, our our alternative final girl because Dewey himself, <laughs> Dewey himself is, you know, he's interesting because he's also transcending into adulthood, right? Because yes. his whole character is about how everyone looks at him like a child, mm-hmm. and I mean. Going back to the production designer, I love when you look at his desk in the police station because it's all just full of, like, kid stuff. And Dunkin' Donuts bags. And Dunkin' Donuts bags. And actually, one thing that I didn't, that that you wouldn't know if you hadn't listened to the commentary is that there is that hat that's on Dewey's computer, Mm -hmm. but you don't really get a good look at it. Well, listening to the commentary, I found out that, uh, I mean, but if you listen to the commentary, you'll realize that uh that hat on there is and maybe this will make some of you lose respect for dewey but or or this hat that actually has boobs on it like if you look really closely at the hat you can actually see like one one of the tits (laughs) and and i think that the that the hat is supposed to say like boob patrol or something (laughs) but that but that is how immature dewey is and you're and you're watching him like sort of become an adult yeah as it goes on by getting stabbed right but but okay, so all of all of this, you know, moving on. So all of this, like, uh, we're talking about, you know, the 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 sort of kind of sexual themes going on here, right? Mm-hmm. And another thing that's so involved in Scream is the the actual commentary on the sexism <laughs> of you know not just the genre but society as a whole, right? Yeah. And, and and that's what I want people to understand too. Before we get deeper into this, is that. I, I really don't believe that Scream is insulting the genre by making this commentary. Again, mm-hmm. I think it comes from a place of love of just like you see room for improvement, right? Yeah. And I'm not one of those people who's like the horror genre ever since it's, you know, ever since it came about has always been sexist and whatever. <laughs> but but there are definitely, you know, lots of examples of things that maybe could have been a little bit Better. less sexist at the time oh, yeah. right <laughs> well and i think the horror genre is such a complicated genre that you can't boil it down to that but right. i, I want to look particularly at the the sexism in the scene where um it's after all the kids have gotten their interviews so it's billy and sydney and Stu and tatum and randy all sitting at the fountain kind of talking about this and the boys are like no, no. It Randy, ha- played by Jamie Kennedy. Yep. Uh, and all the boys are just like, nope, it has to be a male killer. There's no way it could be a female killer. And we're really getting that down on, like, women can't do this. And for a moment, for me watching that movie, I was just like, fuck you guys. <laughs> but this movie does this brilliantly because the movie is telling us the entire time that these boys are wrong, these boys are stupid, and these boys aren't worth half what the women in this film are worth. Because, mm. A, if we look at our very fabulous opening with Casey played by Drew Barrymore the question she misses out on is assigning the wrong role she misses the Pamela Voorhees question Mm. um and Pamela Voorhees is one of our OG female killers kicks ass she could gut any of the people in this movie better than Billy or Stu could indeed I have my love for it. And that's constant throughout this film. There's not a woman in this film. Like, yes, Casey and Tatum both die, but they both fucking kick ass. They kick him in the crotch. They hit him in the well, face with bottles. Well, so look, this, I, get, I, I love feel, them so I, I feel, much. I feel, like every, I feel like every other five minutes of this episode is going to be like, this is why Scream's brilliant, but... Because it is. But it is. And I don't mean to geek out so much, but... But but look so so okay 
on that note, uh, first of all, fun fact, uh, that question, you know, a, a lot of us hardcore horror fans of like, of course it was Pamela. How could you get that wrong? But but for the common the common folk, you know, yeah. the, that actually is a question that Kevin Williamson himself was inspired to use because he stumped people, I guess, with it at a trivia night. But yeah. and, and it makes sense. But anyway, to, to what you're saying about Casey and the women of the film, you know, that's part of the point is that and and one of the many things that I love about Scream is that it gives it gives the women of the movie so much more agency than you see a lot Mm-hmm. of slashers that came before it do right yeah now obviously again there are exceptions at you halloween <laughs> yeah and look you know a lot of you are probably like fuck you chris for saying that but but look hey. i've always felt the same is that is that look uh, J- laurie schrode i think is a good character yes she is she is a really great character but she's not exactly like you know portrayed as much of a fighter in the first film. She's kind of reactive to everything, yeah. Which is why I've always personally loved Nancy from A Nightmare on Elm Street because she's fighting from the very beginning. Which also uh, makes sense why Wes did this film as well. Well, right. Wes Wes was one of these horror directors who was always trying to give voice and break misconceptions of of society and in, within the genre, right? So, and Nancy was an example of that. Scream's another great example of that. He understands People this, Under the Stairs was a great example of that. Yeah, he understands the strength of, of the final girl, but not only the final girl, but a lot of the victims in these films. Like, they fight back. Right. So so why you brought up Casey, and I want to I talk about her really briefly. Why I love Casey so much is that, first, and I could be wrong about what the intention is here and there, because uh, I don't know for sure on some of these things, but... You know, Drew Barrymore uh, was cast, obviously, to do this kind of, like, psycho homage because, you know, Drew Barrymore was such a famous actress at the time. Mm-hmm. And and Scream did an amazing... Like, if if you weren't around during that time or, or you don't remember, Scream did an amazing job of keeping certain things about this film from the audience until they went and saw it, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, if you go back and look at posters for Scream... You know, Sydney, like, Nev Campbell is, like, somewhere in the back because it's, it's got, you know, like, there are different variations of the poster. Mm. My favorite, of course, being the one with the girl covering her mouth in blue, which mm. is kind of a reference to, like, the blue screen of when you would have a VHS tape waiting, mm-hmm. right, which you see in the beginning of this film. But, uh, but then you had other variations where it's, like, the cast lined up. And anyway, Nev Campbell would always kind of be, like, in the middle or the back somewhere and you know uh uh, drew barrymore's in like the front and the forefront Mm -hmm. and and so they were really trying to sell it of like you know the the whole psycho scenario of you know they're uh, where where we kill this famous actress midway through right you know Mm -hmm. and 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 in this case it was like you know drew barrymore is not gonna die in the first five minutes you can't kill her in the first (laughs) five minutes she's drew barrymore (laughs) she's gonna make it right but anyway so they they put this blonde wig on her and Part of why I think that is is because, again, the film is repeatedly kind of fighting back against genre stereotypes, right? Mm-hmm. And and one of them, and this one in particular, is brought up by Sydney, where Sydney, you know, kind of disregards the horror genre because she says that it's always like some big-breasted blonde girl running upstairs, <laughs> right? And and what I love about this introduction with Casey, even though it's so heartbreaking that she doesn't make it, yeah. is that. Casey is that blonde character that Sydney's referring to, except Casey does it differently. Mm-hmm. Casey fights back. Casey almost makes it, and the only reason she doesn't is because her parents don't fucking see her. Yeah. Because they're too busy talking about fucking flower pots <laughs> and whatever the hell they're discussing, right? <laughs> and 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 which is a whole other commentary that we'll get into in a minute. But she is supposed to be like that blonde bimbo that always runs up the stairs, and that's mm-hmm. why she has the wig and everything. 
and I and I love so much that our very opening scene is trying to be like that ain't this movie. No. That's not Scream. We're we're doing it differently this time, you know, and she still dies, but she fucking fights like hell. Yeah. <laughs> She fights. Tatum fights. You get to the end, like, you brought up Dewey as the final girl, and he's a shit final girl because he just gets stabbed and he's out. Yeah, he's pretty bad. (laughs) Yeah, and Gail steps up. Randy's not even useful. Randy just gets fucking shot and gives advice. But it's it's all of the girls stepping up and kicking ass, and that's the thing that I love about Scream is that, you know, yes— a lot of times you got these male killers, they do bigger kills than we ever give female killers, which sucks, I know. But this movie celebrates the victims, basically, and it celebrates mm. how hard each of them fights. And the fact that these dumbass boys get their ass kicked by women <laughs> every well, fucking time. Well, and, and it's why I, and, and look, it works for this film mm-hmm. that the killers are male, but it's why I like that the franchise did eventually give us female killers, too. Yes. Because cause you do have that whole scene where they're talking about, well, it takes a man to do something like that. You know, like, we do have that whole scene, and that whole scene is frustrating. Yes. <laughs> as, as well as the video store scene where Randy's going on a rant, mm-hmm. because cause it acknowledges the fact that, yeah, we do not have a lot of female killers in the genre. Like, a lot of female, you know, killers that are on the level of something like Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers. Yeah. It's always male, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, women are often, in the genre, kind of kept to roles like, Carrie, where like they don't have a physicality, but oh, they're telekinetic. Mm-hmm. Or Mary Lou from Prom Night Two, where it's like, you know, again, not the physicality, but she's a a ghost that has like psychic powers, powers, right? Yep. You know, like women always ha- feel like, or, or it always seems like women are being given roles in horror as villains, where they have to have some kind of supernatural power, right? Otherwise, and how could they possibly uh, kill anyone? <laughs> otherwise, how could they possibly gut somebody, right? <laughs> Which and is it, why it, Tragedy Girls is great. <laughs> exactly. And and anyway, so, you know, Scream's commenting on all that, and and this is going <laughs> to this is gonna really make some of you uncomfortable just thinking about this image. But, but, but going back to Casey really quick, you know, the film, I also think from the very beginning – uh, and Chris hates it that I do this all the time, but sc- like we've kind of been saying a little bit, Scream is very much about sex, I think. And I agree <laughs> with you in, with this film. And, this one, I'll agree and, with you. And it, and it goes back to, I think, the beginning with Casey because you have her line where she's like, what do you want? And the killer says, to see what your insides look like. Oh. And With and that, his penis? Well. <laughs> is that what you're saying? <laughs> yes and no. I'm saying... <laughs> I'm saying that, like, of course, that's a horrible image, and it makes you really like creeped out and scared. But, but to me, uh, in all, the other side of that comment is that if you are looking at this film as being, you know, kind of just about sex and mm-hmm. about Billy's inability to accept that his girlfriend's not fucking him, mm-hmm. you know, then that line kind of takes on a whole new meaning because, you know, you're putting it in a different way. But it's like <laughs> it, it's it's more. So, it, I think it's more so just to say that, like, yes, this is this is intimate. You know, this is mm-hmm. about. This is about intimacy, and this is about I- invading, you know, your body basically. Like wow. that's, like that's kind of, I think, what that line to me means. It's yeah. not, it's not just about killing Casey. It's about actually like invading her in a sense, right? So we can agree that the the boy saying that they have no motivation is bullshit, right? Because it is about sex. Well, yeah, and I mean, fun fun note about that too is that you know, according to Kevin Williamson, the whole reason that the killers say that they have no motivation and then Billy gives a motivation <laughs> is because producers were giving them different notes of like, oh, no. of like, I feel like they should have a motivation, you know? So, yeah. at, so by the end of it, he's just like, okay, fine. I'm just gonna do both. <laughs> Cause I feel like Stu, Stu's the one who wants to fuck Casey. 
Like if we're talking about, because Stu was dating Casey before she dumped him. Uh, I mean, I don't know about that. I, th- I think Stu's a whole different story. I don't think Stu's motivation you think, set. You think Stu's just along for the ride? Stu, Stu is just, yeah, Stu is just a, a crazy motherfucker that got hitched up by Billy in his in his plan. <laughs> I love the idea that Stu is very, like, honest when he says that his, his whole reasoning is just peer pressure. Yeah, I, I mean, that's exactly what it is. But look, I mean, that is, that is his whole motivation. <laughs> his peer pressure and, and and so look and this is where this is where scream for me gets very 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 interesting mm-hmm. I, I mean the whole thing's very interesting but but this is where it's extremely intelligent but also extremely chilling mm-hmm. because you know when when you when you consider Stu and billy as killers first of all let's talk about how different they are for the time so you know to to a lot of you who who weren't there when scream released it probably feels pretty natural now you know like you like you look at billy and Stu and you're like oh that's just normal like by today's standards that's not new you have plenty of killers now like like uh billy and Stu, right Mm -hmm. but but at the time there were so many factors going into why billy and Stu were such an original pair of killers you know one of the fact one of the things being that there were two of them not one yeah you know when you when you watched uh slasher films throughout the late 70s and the 80s there were almost never two killers. I, mm-hmm. I actually can't, off the top of my head, think of a great example that was done like this where there were two killers. Mm-hmm. You know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre being kind of an outlier, but that's yeah, a little yeah. bit different because we're not hiding the killer in that, right? Yeah. But this is the first time I remember that I remember actually having there be two killers. And it fooled me at the time, and it was so brilliant because, you know, we've been talking about how Billy's such an obvious killer, right? Yes. And Stu is such an obvious killer. Like, I don't think they hide it very well with Stu. No. It, it's very clear. Like, the, the film really wants you to see both of these guys as suspects. And it mm. tries to throw you off with different red herrings, uh, which is part of the point. Everybody's a sus. Everybody's a suspect, <laughs> as Randy says. But what was so smart about that is that, you know, you might think it's Billy. You might think it's Stu. But very few of us would have ever thought at the time that it was both. Yeah. And so when it gets revealed that it's both of them, you're like, holy shit, you know. But going to what I want to talk about is that these two guys represent, I think, a changing of the culture that looking back on it is terrifying mm-hmm. and, and chilling in like how well this film kind of predicted. White boy the- fuck culture. <laughs> Yeah, fucky white boy culture. A little bit <laughs> fucking white boy culture, um, because because when you when you look back at this, you know, you've got here here you have these two guys, and and there's mentions of like the millennia and this kind of stuff, and this is very much a teen angst movie, mm-hmm. you know, and about like what teenagers are going through and facing death and all this kind of stuff, and on one hand you have Billy who's like the epitome of. White boy, fuck, fuck boy <laughs> culture, right? Yes. You know th- this guy who like uh, presents himself as the boy next door, but really he's a fucking psychopath who just wants to fuck, right? Yeah. And, and like can't handle that women say no. Mm-hmm. You know, like you have him on the one side, and then you have Stu on the other side saying that his whole motivation is peer pressure. Yeah. And it's kind of talking about the fact that like, look, as it, this was sort of a you know this film was a precursor to Columbine, and and obviously a precursor to you know, just the tragedies that we seem to see in schools day in and day out, right, mm-hmm. these days. And and it was also a precursor to uh, the, the evolution of technology and, like, how that was going to begin affecting society. Because, you know, you do look at this film and 
again, things like cell phones and the and the video camera that Gail leaves, mm-hmm. you know, in in the in the house, those all seem like you know old hat now, but at the time those were new technologies. Yeah. And Scream is in part uh, a response to the introduction of technology to society. And anyway, you know, looking at Billy and looking at Bill and Stu, they're they're kind of you know they're they're the effects really or, or they're how do I say this? They are they are the fears of our society of what would become. Yes, you know, and so like Stu, for example, you know, saying peer pressure, like mm-hmm. look, that's what directly led to kind of some of this angst and anger and trouble in our society is you know just how the internet's affected a lot of people and kind mm-hmm. of warped our brains and shit, you know, like we're now, we're now this like likes and follower culture that, you know, that I, I get, I get so weirded <laughs> out by the fact that I constantly see people on Twitter, like, Hey, I'm just five followers away from this number. Like, like people are like currency, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which is so bizarre to me, <laughs> but they're, but they ultimately are these uh, privileged white dudes mm-hmm. who, you know, who are basically they they have this woe is me attitude and they're not able to deal with it because they're essentially being ignored by the rest of our society yeah and and not being ignored as in like like i'm not i'm not trying to victimize these guys you know Mm -hmm. i'm not trying to say that oh it's not their fault that's not what i'm trying to say it is their fault yeah but but it's it ends up being a part of our fault as well because we don't notice or care to notice because they're white yeah you know we look at them like oh it's that it's that innocent boy next door that innocent white boy next door <laughs> he would never kill everybody you know or or this or this or this rich white guy he wouldn't he would never do all of this you know and, and they're all just and they're both just kind of examples of like you know what we're realizing more and more as a culture is like oh no there there's a problem that we've ignored these fucking yep. privileged white dudes for too long and, and they're fucking psychopathic tendencies yeah <laughs> Like, you know, really briefly, my my thing with it is that Billy is quintessentially that dude who has been handed all of all of this privilege um, Mm. and certain emotional needs have been ignored. His mom did leave. And unfortunately, he instead of, you know, being given the tools to accept it and grow from it blames the one person whose fault it's not it is not maureen prescott's fault that his family got divorced that his dad cheated on his mom not not to mention he's taking the responsibility away from his dad by saying it's maureen prescott's fault and that's the thing (laughs) it's it's one of those things that i think they very accurate accurately pointed out in this film that unfortunately was ignored of you know we have a tendency as a society to rather blame the women than hold the men accountable for stuff you know, Billy even wants to blame his mom's abandonment on mm. all of this shit, then hold himself accountable. And so you have this kind of toxic mentality that Billy very much buys into. And then you have the dudes on the sidelines like Stu that instead of going, hey, man, that's not cool. Maybe you shouldn't kill people because you don't know how to jack off properly. <laughs> I am. Or, you know. <laughs> respect your girlfriend's boundaries or what have you or just you. get a hooker man <laughs> just get, you know it's perfectly fine just go get a hooker any if you want to get to fuck some bad yeah <laughs> and so they just like go down that line and it's the one thing again i love about scream it calls out that toxicity it calls out how bullshit that stuff is and it also calls out how bullshit slut shaming is yeah that's fucking bullshit because you know what 
Sydney had sex and she still kicked that mama boy's ass. Well, so it's part. Of, so look, this is fun too because it, it's you know it's interesting how these boys kind of victim blame themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Like they or, or they victimize themselves because they're kind of like it, both of them almost has almost have this attitude of like it's not my fault. Yeah, you know, like your mom did this to me or you did this to me by mm-hmm. not touching my dick or like you know <laughs> or, or like all that kind of stuff, and it's like. You know, that that's just so it, it it's 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 frustrating, but it's also scary because it's so accurately, I think, reflects a lot of this stuff today. And what ended up happening with Columbine and stuff at the time is that, you know, you do have so many cases where it's like it, it's almost I feel like 99 percent of the time it's some fucking white boy that's that's yep. you know the shooter in these school shootings and stuff and i'm sorry this is so depressing because because <laughs> it's scream and we all love scream but look scream talked about some very real shit all right yeah and and you know it, it's the the chilling part about it is how accurate it is in that mm-hmm. you know they have the whole concept of it's the millennia and there's this pessimism in society mm-hmm. right and there's this there's this frustration and this anger and and we don't understand it, you know. Mm-hmm. And and these guys reflect that because we're just like, there really is no justified reason that they're killing. No. And that's the scary part. And that's what we encounter in society again and again and again is that there is no justified, understandable reasoning that this is happening. That these that these white teen boys are just doing this. Mm-hmm. And and that's what we face all the time. And because we almost never get an answer of like. Why did you go do this? You know, there, there's nothing. <laughs> they never have to be held accountable. They're the only ones who are able to get away with such flimsy excuses. If anybody else tried to use those type of excuses, it wouldn't work. But and, and there's just such a huge con- like I, I'm sorry to focus on this so much, but I, I really do think that this is like the main crux of the movie is that, you know, there really is this huge kind of theme of the the sort of uh, angst of youth at the time. Right. Um, I mean, even, even if you listen to some of the songs chosen, you know, there's the the Youth of America mm-hmm. uh, song that's played in the film, and 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 you look at the kids that respond like joyfully <laughs> to the principal getting hung up on the baseball field, right? Yeah, you know, or, or the football field. It's it's all supposed to say that like, you know, this film is kind of a reflection of this thought of like we're we're losing our youth somehow, like we're we're losing youth to these kind of narcissistic ununderstandable kind of just violent tendencies right Mm -hmm. and and what is happening we don't know we don't understand and and the whole fact that Stu and billy are using movies to blame is so smart because that's what people were doing at the time Mm -hmm. because they don't want to face that it's partially their responsibility so like i grew up during this time period and let me tell you it's why that i really hate that some of you out there hopefully none of you that are listening to this but it's why i really hate right now that there's this kind of like I don't know if I want to call it a movement because I don't know how <laughs> productive it's actually ever going to be. Uh, but I, but I, it, 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 it infuriates me and also unnerves me that there is like this movement, even within the horror fan culture, to you know to like uh, get rid of nudity in in horror movies or mm-hmm. to to have like perfect pristine protagonists that Ew. agree that agree with all of your morals or or to not have villains that you know, portray some kind of thing that you don't agree with because then you think it's like the writer's uh, uh, understanding or, or belief in the topic. And there's all this like toxic censorship that's kind of come up. Mm-hmm. And it, it reminds me so much of growing up in the 90s when parents and politicians and basically every fucking adult 
blamed horror movies and video games for violence in our culture Mm -hmm. and being someone who's been watching horror films and playing video games since I was three years old I couldn't disagree with that more (laughs) you know Uh, because I have never killed anybody and I don't even like killing bugs so I don't so you know I just it, it became an excuse right it became the the parental justification for like why youth was acting out this way mm-hmm. and ultimately the whole thing is is that it really was you know the ultimate answer really is just that the older generations stopped paying attention yes <laughs> you know they stopped paying attention they stopped caring we we see it in i feel like i'm going off too much on a tangent right now but <laughs> but we see it in these court cases all the time where it's always like you know boys will be boys and all this Ugh. kind of stuff like we we just we give excuses yeah and it's why I love the father death costume. Name for the costume. Name for the costume. Because, you know, the re- the reason it's thrown in there, I, I think if I remember correctly, is uh, Wes says that, you know, that was just another red herring to kind of put into the viewer's mind of like, oh, maybe it's Sydney's dad, right? Yeah. But, but it also kind of plays into this sort of theme of like, you know, Billy and Stu are our killers. But one of the not mentioned or acknowledged killers in the movie is the older generation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and it and I think that father death is so suitable for that because it's almost kind of like saying that, you know, they are the ones doing the killing, mm-hmm. but it's the older generation that put them on the path to doing that yeah. because they stopped paying attention, they stopped acknowledging their kids and their problems. <laughs> And, and are just like, oh, that's just that's just teenagers now. <laughs> yeah, and the parents stop taking any kind of accountability with anything either. Like, look, no. if we if we look at Billy and his parental situation, it might not have changed if his parents had actually talked to him about anything. But clearly, they didn't, and so Billy just became unhinged. Mm-hmm. Stu's fucking parents leave him alone when there's a killer going around. His parents are gone for the night, and he's able to have this house party. You know, our authority figures are constantly letting the kids down in this entire film. Right, which is why I love that Dewey is so inept, because he's, <laughs> he's just a whole big commentary on how fucking useless cops are through all these movies. But it also kind of gives him a personality and makes him a decent person. So. Oh, I would make the argument that Dewey is not that much older than our main character. He's 25. Which is, which is why he's not completely useless and regarded as like this this mean-spirited character or this character who doesn't get anything we 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 understand and accept dewey because he is closer to the age yeah but i think that also speaks to the fact that a lot of times older generations would rather put upon other kids to watch the kids yeah like you know the oldest sibling is expected to watch the younger ones that sort of situation and that's a terrible system yeah, well, so look, th- this is also why I really love the the uh, the visualization of Ghostface mm-hmm. uh, and, and the whole concept of, like, what the killer would look like in general because, you know, so the, the idea of the Ghostface, I love it because it, to, to me it's a reflection of, like, the ghosts of our past. Yeah. You know, so, like, when you really consider what the Ghostface is and and keeping it spoiler-free for, you know, the, the sequels that came after, mm-hmm. but, but it still relates to those, is that every one of those films, the... The ghost face itself, I think, is a kind of representation of, like, the the ghosts of our past and the mistakes that we've made and the way that we've kind of fucked up, you know, the, yeah. the generation that come after. Um, and, and they are wearing that face, you know, to sort of reflect that, to represent that, that this is, this is the ghost that you've created. This is the ghost of your past that you've manifested. 
And what's so great about the the actual uh, face itself, you know, mm-hmm. being inspired by what was a Van Gogh's painting or, or some, you know, being van- oh, being inspired scream? by the screen painting, right? Uh-huh. The, what's so great about that that actual image is that the face is kind of contorted in different emotions where it's like anger and pain and chaos and frustration. Like it's all of these different things. It's not like Michael Myers mask where it's just kind of plain and inhuman and cold. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, The scream mask is very much like a pained kind of reflection. Right. So I just think it's so perfect that it's a ghost. (laughs) Yeah. well, and I also see it as pulling reference from the the drama. You know, drama's got the tragedy and the comedy mask. Mm. And this one is the tragedy mask. To your point, this is the tragedy. That's the tragedy of the ghosts of everything. Yeah, yeah. fun fact too here. Uh, so in, in, in Williamson's script, he, he acknowledges that the mask was going to be like this ghost face, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but he doesn't acknowledge what the killer's wearing. And so that kind of became somewhat of a dispute amongst production like how to how to dress the killer mm-hmm. uh because you know they still have to hide them so you don't like know who it is right like you can't you can't have michael myers where you've got the hair and everything poking out like they had to make the killer hidden mm-hmm. and originally instead of a black cloak they were actually gonna put the killer in a white cloak to further emphasize the ghost element oh but they ended up deciding that it looked a little too much you know ku klux Klanny. yeah <laughs> which <laughs> In retrospect, you know, I understand the choice to go away from that, and I do think that black ultimately probably looked better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in retrospect, it's pretty fitting on the franchise because the franchise's killers are always, like, privileged white people. Yeah, <laughs> they are. <laughs> <laughs> so it kind of makes sense. Um, but anyway, so one last thing I want to talk about before we get into uh, into the audience reactions to this and everything uh, and start wrapping up here is I, I just – I really want to make sure that we just talk about the – impact of this film on on horror and culture in general mm-hmm. and you know so kind of kind of going back to what we started off with is look scream again changed everything yes you know and, and it was it was so noticeable at the time growing up with it and especially now if you reflect on it because it first of all it came at a time where slashers were kind of dead mm-hmm. you know the the early 90s you didn't really find a lot of slashers it was mostly kind of uh, cheap monster movies and you know stuff like that which i love don't get me yeah. wrong i i think they're all great but but the slasher was kind of dead it, it mm. had been burnt out and so scream came around and it not only revitalized the slasher but it also you know kind of introduced the whole sort of meta and and horror comedy culture which is where i think that you know it it, it, it had it, a bit of a negative hurt, effect. Like, like, like Scream itself was great. Yeah. But the problem was is that a lot of filmmakers and writers didn't really understand why Scream worked. Yeah. You know, because they ended up doing exactly what Craven said you shouldn't, which is the death is serious. The, yeah. de- the death is meaningful, right? Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of these horror comedies or these meta horror films, they, they made a joke about it all. And yeah. I'm not saying that all those movies were bad. Uh, some are very fun, actually, but mm-hmm. um, but they did make the mistake, and it's why they were never as good as Scream, because, you know, the, it was always kind of a wink at the camera sort of feel to it, right? Yeah. And and Scream was not that. Scream was subtly that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but 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 I think what was – but I think what's more important about Scream, other than kind of, you know, introducing this sort of meta horror comedy sort of trend that we went on to for the rest of the 90s – in the early 2000s is that 
I, me personally, I think that it challenged the genre to be better. Yes. You know, I, I think it challenged the genre to rethink how it handled different stereotypes, to, to rethink of how it, you know, did these films and, and rethink the importance of them, you know, because, because mm-hmm. again, you know, w- when you look at slasher history, like us horror fans, we find a lot of validity and, and importance in these movies. The general society, not so much, though, you know. Mm-hmm. But but I think when you start to look at Scream as the sort of pre-Columbine film, I, I think that there is, like, such a vast importance to it. Um, and and uh, and a part of me believes that maybe maybe Scream brought some, some, some much-needed attention to the genre from people who had always kind of ignored it, like Sydney, you know, in the first <laughs> place, thinking it was just this big-breasted blonde girl running up the stairs you know mm-hmm. and, and scream kind of said no that's not what the, that's not what horror is yeah you have to look deeper at it than that mm-hmm. right and, and for me that's kind of what it did is it i i think it really challenged the genre to evolve and and kind of become better yeah. in a sense no i definitely agree with that i think that we did have a period right after scream where everybody took the wrong notes they took the wrong notes from this film. They they listened to Randy went, okay, those are the rules. We're going to abide by them. And didn't really listen. But we eventually got to a generation of filmmakers who watched Scream. They understood what the importance was. And I think that's why we had a burst of horror films that are challenging what we've done before. Hmm. And like for me, you know, the, the emotional successor to Scream is something like Tucker and Dale versus Evil. I, I think that that really got the notes of like, if you're going to do a, a slasher and have comedy moments in it, challenge yourself with what you're presenting. That's why we have things like Cabin in the Woods, things that take our genre and then they challenge them. And I think that that's so cool. That's mm. what we love about horror is that horror challenges, you know, societal norms, what we're used to in the genre. And those are the movies that we love. And I think Scream being the first one to step up to the plate fucking knocked it out of the park and everyone kind of sucked for a little bit after it (laughs) i i mean i mean look if you're first like you're almost never gonna be topped right so yeah you can't nobody's gonna be better than scream and and i and and you know i acknowledge that there are people out there that don't like scream and i think that's Mm -hmm. totally and i think that's totally fine of course uh but this movie like when when you really do just kind of look at it scene for scene and and how it's accomplishing what it's doing i mean my god like this film is just incredible it, yeah. it's it's absolutely brilliant from both craven and williamson standpoint which that being said let's move into our awards for the movie so <laughs> uh so who 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 is your killer idiot of scream as we wrap up here <laughs> like, i fucking love her but tatum for trying to go out a fucking cat door you're not gonna fit bitch your boobs are too big yeah i <laughs> like she's in a tough spot and i get it but like I mean, I mean, yes, it was dumb, but I mean, she's got to she's got to try to get, she's got to try to get out of it somehow, right? So. <laughs> I know, but just come on. Uh, which, or or Kenny the cameraman. Yeah, well, I mean, well, Kenny's pretty dumb, but I, I would argue that Tatum going through the cat dog door. door, cat door is probably a little dumber. <laughs> but <laughs> um, which one last fun fact for y'all? <laughs> uh, Kevin Williamson's a huge fan of Halloween, which is why you see Halloween represented kind of Everywhere. all throughout this movie a little bit and uh and one of those representations is tatum being killed in the garage it's a callback to the original halloween where uh i'm the names annie. annie annie gets killed in the car yes thank you where, where you have annie killed in the car in the garage it's basically a callback to that but anyway uh my killer idiot is 
Dewey's. <laughs> little uh, dum-dum. Uh, and, and look, this is not an insult to Dewey. I mean, it kind of is because I'm calling him a moron. But, um, <laughs> but understand that I love Dewey. I think Dewey's an incredible character. And, you know... But but I but he is an idiot in this film because he he basically you know he he is partially representative of the fact that cops are fucking useless in horror movies like that <laughs> that that is the joke of Dewey you know that's why he that's why he is so childish and boyish and his little why, strawberry ice cream cone <laughs> and it, he's got a strawberry ice cream cone he he's, his desk is so childish right and and he and he doesn't really do anything in the movie no. other than. <laughs> You know, he doesn't accomplish anything. And, you know, all of that, I think, is is a direct, you know, comment on the fact that cops and horror films and really in society are generally fucking useless. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he's my killer idiot because he just, oh, he just fails so many times in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> but at least he's a good person and he tries. Yes. <laughs> what about your killer death in Scream? Okay, so this might be a weird one, but Stu gets my killer death. And he gets my killer death because him getting the TV pushed on his head when I saw it for the first time at that slumber party made me so afraid of a TV falling on me that I did not want to get up and have to change the VHS for a new movie. (laughs) I was very worried. But also everything leading up to Stu's death, because Stu's death is not just for me, the television, but it's, you know, him and Billy trading the stabs. And he has so many good lines as he's dying where Mm. he's just like, I can't, man, you cut me too deep. I'm feeling woozy. And then fucking Billy chucks the phone in his head. Like he just (laughs) there's so many great lines with Stu at the end. Well, look, we we really didn't talk uh, much about Matthew Lillard in this, which 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 disappoints me because Matthew Lillard is amazing in this movie. And and he actually has my favorite line in the entire film, which is. My mom and dad are gonna be so mad at me. <laughs> like, which which was an improvised which was an improvised line, and oh. Wes Wes just thought it was so funny that he kept it in. <laughs> but and 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 what's and so okay, shout out to Matthew Lillard. He's uh, amazing because we didn't talk about him enough. But Kevin Williamson himself says that 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 in his mind he thought that Stu was his most underwritten character, mm-hmm. and yet. And yet Matthew Lillard managed to bring him so much to life that he's now like one of, you know, the most liked characters from the Scream franchise. So so that's a huge comment or that that that's a huge mad respect to Matthew Lillard for how much he uh, influenced that role. He's a talented actor. I love him. Yeah. Uh, But so so Stu is also my killer death Um, (gasps) for for all the reasons you mentioned. I mean, people really don't understand. Like back in the '90s and, and early 2000s, like we didn't we didn't have these flat screen TVs that we have now. Okay, yeah. TVs <laughs> used to weigh like a hundred fucking pounds, yep. and and they could kill you if they fall on you. Yeah. I, I mean, now if my TV fell on me, I I don't think it would really hurt me much. No, but, you'd be fine. But back then, I mean, these things were fucking death machines, yeah. and I, I I will never forget memories of like having to move my fucking like uh 40 inch big box TV. Oh. In, in my Camaro at the time, right? And having these little back seats and I could barely fit the TV in it. And anyway, th- thank God we live in a future where, <laughs> where TVs are thin as they should be. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I, and I also just like the irony of it because, you know, Stu's whole motivation, I think, is he just wants, he wants to be acknowledged and recognized and be on TV and, mm-hmm. and you know, be a star, like be seen for the first time. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of like, Here's your close-up, Stu. You know, yeah. like <laughs> get ready for your close-up, Mr. Stu, uh, or Mr. Lillard. Um, but anyway, so 
What about your killer MVP of Scream? Look, that goes to Randy. Like, we've barely talked about him with this, but Randy was... So, Jamie Kennedy. <laughs> no, Randy the character. Okay. I mean, ja- <laughs> Jamie Kennedy does a great job playing... Fuck Ran- Jamie Kennedy! <laughs> no, That's he, Chris. <laughs> yeah, he does a great job playing the character, but I want to specifically give the MVP to the character of Randy because he is the horror fan personified and put into their favorite movie for the first time. Literally watching Scream and watching Randy, I'm like, look, that's my husband. My husband is on the screen. <laughs> that and, is your husband. <laughs> you know, and I think that, that that is such a cool thing that Scream did. It not only like made all this huge commentary on the genre, but brought the fan, the fans who really love this, in to be a part of that. And I think that's so cool. So Randy, the character, gets to be my MVP. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes sense. I'll, I'll have more to say on that in a second, but my my MVP is Wes Craven, and and of course it is because well, he's amazing. I'm, that's not a well, shame. Well, look, I want to explain why because you know I, I do think that giving the director the MVP for great movies like this is sometimes a little too easy, right? Mm-hmm. The reason I'm giving it to Wes for Scream is. First of all, I, I'm going to be giving different MVP awards throughout the franchise that, that <laughs> won't go to Wes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to give it to him for this first Scream film because because of what Wes did with it and because of where he was at the time. So, you know, Wes in his career at the time that Scream came out, Wes was kind of becoming, you know, sort of um, forgotten is the wrong word. Aww. But but Wes, Wes was falling into that, like... You know, you're you're from this generation of horror directors, mm-hmm. and we want the new generation. Well, not necessarily the new generation, but more a thing of like you know, after Nightmare on Elm Street, I don't know that there was a film that Wes was really, really just like widely acknowledged for. Mm-hmm. Even though he should have been for some, like People Under the Stairs is a great movie, so good. I, I think it's a phenomenal horror film. But but what but you know Wes's best moment I think was Nightmare on Elm Street and he mm-hmm. didn't really I I don't know that he had that kind of same moment until Scream right mm-hmm. and so with Scream you know I just felt like and, and actually you know part of the reason that Wes took the job uh for, for my understanding is that he he started to kind of you know he was getting comments from fans and stuff that. That said that, you know, they felt like he had gone soft or something. And and he, and, and he himself, I think, if I remember right, was actually looking to possibly move a little bit out of the horror genre at the time. And so I guess when I look at Scream and just how well-crafted it is, you know, Kevin Williamson, what a great script. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that if I, if I was going to give the MVP to anybody else, it would be Williamson in this case. Because Williamson wrote an amazing script. Like, look, I, it, I, I know a lot of people don't read scripts. But I would so highly suggest you at least read uh, the opening scene of Scream because it is some of the best writing in a screenplay that I've ever read. Mm-hmm. Uh, Williamson's an amazing writer. But but I want to give it to Wes because, to me, Scream feels like... It feels like Wes really fighting to say that he still matters. You know, yeah. that, he, that he is still relevant in this genre that he is still relevant as a filmmaker and it just it really feels like Wes putting everything he has into making this movie to you know to kind of to kind of say that like to establish himself as like I am not just the guy who made a nightmare on Elm Street I am a I am a filmmaker I make movies and I make good movies you know mm-hmm. and and I and that's what scream feels like to me it feels like Wes like screaming out to the world 
that he makes good movies. And and I do think that why I give it to Wes in this case, I do think that if you had other directors tackle this movie, it would not have been the same. No. Because, again, like I said, there were a lot of directors who didn't understand Scream. They thought it was a comedy. They didn't understand what it was trying to say, you know, and what it was trying to do for the genre. And Wes was one of those directors who got it. He got what it wanted to do. He got what the tone for it was. And I think that Wes was also the perfect person to do it as well because not only did he get it, but something that Wes always did as a filmmaker is like, you know, a a friend of mine, Steve, shout out to Steve, uh, pointed this out to me one time that he felt that Wes didn't necessarily have his, his own particular directing style. And while I somewhat disagree with that, the thing that I'll say is like, you know, I, I will say that Wes is is a great director because he 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 does manage to do different styles of filmmaking mm-hmm. uh, with his own little touch. Yeah. And and you can't always point out a Wes Craven film because of that. But you look at other filmmakers like John Carpenter, you know a John Carpenter movie. John Carpenter has a very specific style that he does, right? Mm-hmm. Wes is a little bit more of a chameleon, but I think that that actually works perfectly for Scream because Scream is such this huge commentary on the entire genre as a whole that when you're watching throughout Scream, it does so many different things. You know, it, it has it has elements from horror of the 80s or the 70s or, you know, we've, we've got kind of campy, corny moments. We've got really great, serious, horrifying moments. You know, he, he incorporates different elements of the genre all throughout and he does it seamlessly, you know. Yeah. And 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 for those of you wondering, like, what the hell am I talking about? <laughs> you know, look no further than uh than the shot where Sydney and Tatum are talking on the porch, you know, about about what's going on, and you have this just like random shot to Ghostface, like in the <laughs> riding in the bushes, it, like running in the bushes <laughs> in the woods, like that. Like that is such a shout out to you know just like some of these like corny, campy slashers from the eighties. Yeah. But then he turns right around and it gives you something completely new and horrifying, mm-hmm. you know. And so he just, I, I feel like so few directors, maybe no other directors at the time, could have infused so many different elements of the genre into this one movie and done it as seamlessly as Wes. Yeah. So <laughs> Wes Craven was the only person who could do this. And, you know, in defense of him, I'm not good about picking up director styles, but Wes Craven has a tone that he's able to accomplish in all of his movies. When you compare Nightmare to People Under the Stairs to this one, he is seamlessly able to balance something that very few other horror directors can do, and that is the scary and the comedic. He knows how to give you those emotional breaks so that when he hits you, he hits you so much harder than any other director. The only one I think could who could have maybe even come close is maybe Sam Raimi. But even he would have missed the mark. Raimi, no, see, I, I actually think Raimi would have done this completely comedic. And, yeah? And, and, and yeah, no, and I do. I, I do. Because, like, Ra- Raimi... I, I, we, don't, we, don't, him, we don't have time for me yeah. to get into Raimi, but I, I do think Raimi would have done this differently. Yeah, he would have. I, I really do think Wes was the perfect choice for this. And it's easy mm-hmm. to say that looking back after he's done it. Yeah. But I really do think Wes was the perfect choice because Wes does have an ability to incorporate so many different styles. Mm-hmm. And he's not necessarily committed to one. But the thing that Wes is, is that he had over a decade of filmmaking experience and mm-hmm. doing his own horror films. And he did such a variety of horror in his time as a director, you know. So when he did Scream, he was able to bring different elements from different parts of the genre into this one movie. 
so you, so when you look at this, you do see elements of you know Nightmare on Elm Street mm-hmm. and The Hills Have Eyes, but then you also see elements from other filmmakers, you know, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or yeah. or, or so a little bit of Sam Raimi, or you know, like you you see different stuff throughout this. Uh, but anyway, so we got to move on. We got to start wrapping up. I'm already so so over time. But look at Scream. So of course we're gonna spend we a little bit to. of extra time on this. Uh, but so okay, moving to our audience reaction. So as you all know, if you've been listening to us for a while, every week on Twitter we put up a poll on our Twitter at Killer Critics, just kind of getting your thoughts and feelings on the film, what you think of it overall. So between love it, it's fine, don't like it, never seen it, where do you think the audience fell on Scream? <laughs> really? It's obviously love it. It's obviously it's love obviously. it. I, I would have <laughs> I would have been shocked. I would have cried. If it was anything but love it. I would have felt um, tricked if they voted for this and then everybody said they hated it. Yeah, so 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 love it got eighty two point three percent. it's fine got thirteen point nine percent. Don't like it got 1.3%, and there were some never seen it (gasps) at 2.5%, which I will not shame you for having not seen it. Again, I am not that kind of fan. I hate that kind of fan. Yes. But you should absolutely go see Scream if you have never seen it before. It's amazing. Yes. (laughs) Uh, So so we always like to get comments from you all as well. So these are all from Twitter. And so first up is at runkylerun13. So I don't think I have to spell that. Again, that's run, Kyle, run, and then the numbers one, three. And they say, Scream literally resurrected the slasher genre. I remember watching it for the first time and feeling like this what it would and feeling like this is what it would be like if someone like me was in a horror movie. It celebrated horror fans instead of making fun of them. It made me feel happy to be a horror nerd. <laughs> You know, that really, it's the beauty of Scream. And I will I will always forever love Scream because we know slashers are my favorite. And so the, no. the thought that the slasher genre could have just died out or come back as something different if Scream hadn't shown up makes me really sad. So I will forever be grateful for Scream for that. But yeah, there are so few movies sometimes it feels like in the horror genre that really celebrate the people who love this genre. And Scream did that. Scream not only revitalized one of, you know, the quintessential parts of this genre with the slasher film, but also made all of us as fans feel seen and validated. And Mm. that's such a difficult thing to do. And so, you know, that's why Scream will always be one of the best horror films that has ever been made. It's always going to be on the top of my list, but... I'm a slasher slut, so yeah, <laughs> I can't help that. Uh, a slasher slut. I feel like that needs to be a t-shirt. Um, I would wear that t-shirt. <laughs> I'm going to make that t-shirt. I would uh, love it. All of you message me if you want me to make a slasher slut t-shirt. <laughs> Could it have Jason in like a slutty crop top? Absolutely. Yes. Um, so <laughs> yeah, so so two things I'll just add to that really quick is, you know, I, I, I love this comment. And look, I, I want to make sure I point this out that look, a, a lot of you love great comments. We got a lot of comments for this one. I'm sorry if yours wasn't included, you know, it, we just we only have so many that we can include. Uh, but I love this comment because it it, it I, I agree like it cap like Scream was so important to people like me at the time, you know, because you got to understand, like this was 1996. Uh, I was about nine years old at the time. And already at nine, I, I realized that. Is that how old we were when we were watching this movie? Yes. Okay. <laughs> And and already at the time, I I understood that there weren't a lot of people that looked at the genre like I did, or or felt the way, or even felt the way about movies that I did, right? And so seeing a character like Randy was so important to me, 
because one, not not only here is this character that you know so perfectly kind of encapsulates who I am as a person, and yes, for all of you wondering, I am Randy in he, real life because he is. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I am exactly like Randy in a lot of ways. Down to uh, the screaming inappropriately in a store. Yeah, which I, I got a story <laughs> about that in a second for another comment. But, but, but what was so important to me beyond that is that, you know, Randy wasn't necessarily the first character to kind of represent horror fans in a sense, right? Uh, I mean, e- even small appearances like, uh, like in Friday the 13th Part 7, you know, there's a character who's really nerdy that writes, like, really shitty sci-fi stories, right? Mm-hmm. The difference with Randy, though, is that Randy lived. And that and yeah. that was so vital, so vitally important for us horror fans because we had always been the character who were never the hero. Were, you know, like, like, the nerd is never the hero. They're never uh, the final person to live. They're never anything like that, right? They always die. Mm-hmm. And so to see Randy live... To see him not just be this huge geek in horror, but to actually live, it was validating. You know, yeah. it, it, it's this feeling of like, I matter. Like mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not just the nerd who gets killed off halfway through the reel, right? Like I, I, I can actually make it. You know, mm-hmm. and so, and so, th- you know, that's the meaning of these movies. It's why we, it's why all of us, it's so important for us to see ourselves on screen, because especially in horror, because horror, the whole genre is based around this idea that. You know, you, you face your fears and it makes you feel more powerful to see people like yourself do that and live through it. Right. Mm-hmm. So to see Randy live, it's like I, I can survive the bullying. I can survive the, you know, people looking at me differently. I can be Randy and I can make it out of this shit. Right. <laughs> so, uh, so 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 no, I completely agree. It, Scream was so important for that reason. And uh, and, I, and I just I couldn't agree more. So thank you at Run Cow Run 13 for the comment. Appreciate it. Um, next up is a comment from. At KG Vision, so that's K A G E Y, and then Vision, and they say an awesome movie and the rebirth of horror, in my opinion. Scream also set the template for horror movie posters for years to come, e.g., I Know What You Did Last Summer and Final Destination, as a couple of examples. Oh my God, it really did. Like when it comes to the posters, I I know I'm not a huge horror history buff the way that Matt is, so he'll be able to respond to that better. But when it comes to the posters. Yes, Scream kicked off a generation where every horror poster after it just looked like a ripoff. I hated it. <laughs> it I really so hated bad. it. It was <laughs> so, so bad. So look, I, I don't, I don't know if that's the way KG intends intends the comment, but I hated that so much. Like, so first of all, yes, it. I, I do think that it gave sort of a rebirth to horror because people really need to realize, like, the early '90s. I'm not going to say it was bad for horror because mm. you still had a lot of good horror films coming out at the time. But horror was not recognized <laughs> in the early '90s. It was not. It was not respected. You know, the the between that late '80s and the early '90s, horror was kind of a joke, right? Yeah. And so, which is where Scream Scream kind of came from. And so, mm-hmm. so it did revitalize genre as we talked about. But yes, oh my God, the way that it affected posters and marketing for a few years after. Holy shit, did I hate <laughs> that time period? And it, and it, and it, and what's so frustrating is that Scream itself actually had a really good poster with the girl with the hand over her mouth and mm-hmm. the blue coloring, you know, to represent the VHS screen before you popped on a tape, right? Like, that that was great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of Silence of the Lambs-ish, right? And it, yeah. and it was its own unique thing. But then they had the alternative poster to kind of hide who the killer and the heroes were, 
uh, like I mentioned earlier, with Barrymore and and, uh, and Nev Campbell's placement Barrymore? in the poster. With Drew Barrymore <laughs> and Nev Campbell's replacement in the poster. Um, but it just set the stage for just awful posters <laughs> moving forward because there's this huge trend, like, with I Know What You Did Last Summer and all of the screen movies and the faculty, like, basically every Kevin Williamson movie. Yep. Uh, and, and just all the, like, bloody Valentine, like... Uh, or, or Valentine, like just all these slashes that came after, it was always like the cast, you know, this cast <laughs> of like sexy MTV style teenagers lined up, you know, like like they're lined up for some kind of uh, fucking criminal <laughs> photo shoot right at a police station. And it just like, it just, it was awful because because horror in the 80s especially had such great posters. Yes. I mean, you know, speaking of Wes Craven, like, just look at the posters for the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. They're gorgeous. They are art. <laughs> and, when, and when you looked at the posters for, like, the mid to late 90s and early 2000s with all these fucking lineups of <laughs> hot MTV teenagers, it's like, God damn it. <laughs> Matt is it could be so much better than this. <laughs> Matt is especially upset because all of our artwork in our house is all horror movie posters and stuff like that. And we cannot have anything from the 90s to the early 2000s because all the posters are ugly. I wouldn't buy it. I would never, I would never hang. Look, I love Urban Legend. I would never hang that poster up in my house. Which bums <laughs> me out because I love Urban Legend and I want a good Urban Legend poster and a good Scream. We don't have any Scream in our house. Well, we should get an original screen print and hang that up with the girl with the mouth over. We'll get the girl with the mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But anyway, so thank you at KG Vision for the comment. Appreciate it. Uh, Next up is a comment from at Narcotic Casser One. So that's Narcotic, C-A-S-S-E-R, and then the number one. And they say, during my re-binge, I had this revelation, but I'll give it to you as food for thought. But all the killers in each screen movie satirize a particular variation of white privilege. Yes, they absolutely do. And it's something that I am very excited to kind of talk about this entire month is that the Scream Killers, I will argue, are some of the most creative and inventive killers. Just in, I, I guess creative and inventive isn't the right way, but. Well, I think that, I, I don't know if that's touching on their comments of how yeah. they're white privilege. No, but that's the thing is like, we we don't talk about white privilege too much as as a horror villain and that's what's so great the entire scream franchise stays dedicated to calling out that privilege the two things about it though yeah and and what i really 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 wish that filmmakers would acknowledge these days (laughs) is that look we we really need to understand that (laughs) movies are entertainment first yes and their commentary second yes right and what so many films have forgotten these days is the entertainment element. Yep. And they're just in your face with the theme of it. And I'm yeah. not going to say, like, look, I, I'm not one of those people who's like, oh, the, you know, the the new Scream is terrible because of white privilege or whatever. I'm not one of those people. I think it's great that we acknowledge this stuff in horror. That's what mm-hmm. horror is meant for is to yes. acknowledge this stuff in society. But we need to remember subtlety in the genre, right? <laughs> and and this and look, you can look at Scream and like Narcotic Caster points out here, and like we've been talking about through the episode, is there are elements of white uh, of commentary on white privilege throughout this franchise. Mm-hmm. Every killer, as Narcotic Caster pointed out to me, does represent some kind of white privilege. And yep. I'm gonna I'm gonna go back and take their comments for each film uh, to to kind of talk about that, but. But they're all subtle about it, you know? There's, yeah. there's no no one person in Scream is like, hey, so Billy and Stu are totally killing us all because they're privileged white boys, right? Like, we don't talk... It doesn't have to be talked about openly 
because you're giving us an artistic interpretation of it so that we can all kind of look at it and evaluate ourselves. I don't want movies to tell me exactly what they're trying to say. I want to understand and come to that revelation myself. I don't want to be spoon fed. Yes. <laughs> these themes, right? So Well, and what I'll give Scream is that while white privilege is generally the villain for a lot of these films, that's not the only thing they're talking about. This one is talking about the pressures of sex and being a teenager. So, that's the beauty of Scream is that it's not just about that, it's more. Yeah. No, definitely. Uh so anyway, thank you at Narcotic Caster 1 for the comment. Appreciate it. Uh, next is a comment from at Shannon Morant. So that's S-H-A-N-N-O-N-M-O-R-A-N-T. And they wanted to ask us a couple questions. They say, do you think the opening scene set the tone for the whole movie by killing off Drew Barrymore? And they also want to ask, are you glad they kept Dewey alive at the end because originally he was going to die? <laughs> okay. So I think that the opening scene for this movie is one of the best, if not the best, horror movie openings. And that's because within that short amount of time, they encapsulate everything about this movie. They capture the comedic tone we're going to get. They capture the seriousness, kick-ass ladies. And also the opening breaks my heart every fucking time with the mom on the phone. This opening very much gets the entire theme of the movie in 15 minutes or however short it is. So it's brilliant. And yes, I am glad they kept Dewey alive. I'm glad that Dewey shows up in every movie because I love him. He's a little dum-dum who just runs around and does nothing. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I've already talked about the opening. I have to comment on that. But the thing I will say is that uh, as far as Dewey goes, so for those of you that don't know, Shannon Moran is 100% correct here. You know, Dewey... Uh, originally did die in Scream, Aww. and and one of one of the uh, Wes Craven, being the genius that he is, uh, basically included like he he basically shot a scene where Dewey was still alive with the one that we see in the final film with him being loaded into the ambulance, and that was intentionally because he felt that if the audience loves Dewey, I want to be able to bring Dewey back, mm -hmm. right? So that's how it turned out. The the audience loved Dewey. I think in the uh, screenings for the film, you know, the, that was one of the feed. That was part of the feedback is that the audience loves Dewey. So they included that shot to keep him alive. So hey. I will say, yes, I'm very glad Dewey lived because I think Dewey is one of the best characters in the franchise. I love David Arquette's portrayal. I think he's such a great actor in general. Um, a little dum-dum. And, and he just, <laughs> Dewey to me is the, is the sweet bubbly heart of the franchise, right? Mm -hmm. Like Gail and Sydney are, are completely different representations of different elements. Badass and, bitches. Yeah. And, and Dewey is just like, he's the, he's the sweet honey, you know, <laughs> just like, ah, just, I, I feel at home, like mm -hmm. kind of character in this franchise. Right. So it, it is necessary. I think that he's in there. And I'm going to cry so much if he dies in the new one. So. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so thank you at Shannon Morant for the comment. Appreciate it. And then one last comment uh, is from at 24th underscore doctor. So this is my friend, Caitlin. She uh, used to be my assistant editor at KillerHorrorCrick.com. I miss her every day and <laughs> everything that we did together. But uh, so that is at uh, 24th underscore doctor. And she says, do you guys think Stu is coming back in the new film? <gasps> And do you have a character that you most identify with in Scream? How would Stu be able to come back? He got squished by a TV's. <laughs> that's my thought. That's my thought exactly. And I will add to it that no, I do not think that Stu is coming back. Uh, as much fun as that would be, I don't want that to be the case. I know that there are a lot of people who uh, love Matthew Lillard's performance so much that they want Stu to come back. I love his performance too. I don't want that though. The reason being that I think that 
each Scream film really honestly perfectly represents uh, the uh, the period that we're in. Like, all, all the killers in these films perfectly represent the period that we're in, and they represent, like, some sort of facet of our culture that kind of needs to be discussed and tackled and, and, and really observed for, like, mm-hmm. what we could be doing wrong, right? And And for me, for Stu to come back, not only is it kind of a disservice to the franchise and that it makes it a little more supernatural in my opinion because Stu got fucking crushed by a TV and electrocuted. <laughs> I, I'm really pretty positive he's fucking dead, dead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so not only would that kind of, I think, be an insult to the franchise, but I also just think that, like, what else do we really have to say with Stu? Mm-hmm. You know? I'm not saying there couldn't be anything, but I, 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 but I don't know that... I, I would rather see the franchise tackle a new kind of you know what what's been going on in the last 10 years that we can tackle instead of just bringing Stu back and his little you know bitchy peer pressure I, <laughs> bullshit yeah uh Stu's not welcome back but matthew lillard is i would love to see him in the movie just playing someone new and, and you have a character you most identify with no unfortunately not like i see a little bit of myself in sydney but i'm not as kick-ass as she is so i'm one of the background characters I think you're kick-ass, but maybe you're that extra in the video store when Randy's shouting about, you know, the the virgins and stuff like that and how everybody's a suspect and you're the person in the background who's like, what the fuck is that guy talking about? No, uh, uh, I'd love to be the girl who's asking about the, the howling, but I don't know actors enough to be able to know that the mom played E.T. D. Wallace. Um, I don't but know I, what the fuck that is. Uh, well, uh, but okay. So, so really quick. Yes, I would be Randy. Yes, Caitlin. I, I would be, I would be Randy. I don't think that's really much of a question, but to give you such an idea of how I would be Randy, I'm sure I've mentioned this on this podcast many times. Uh, but one last time for those of you who haven't heard me say this before. Um, no, I am legit Randy. I one time, uh, got an apartment fined at a party, <laughs> uh, that I was in during college because speaking of the howling, uh, somebody brought the howling and said it was a shitty werewolf movie, and I spent the next half an hour shouting about why I thought that was such an amazing movie. <laughs> Only half an hour? It was probably more than that, but I but I was shouting so loud about it the way that Randy does in the video store that we yeah we actually got fined uh, by the apartment complex. <laughs> One of these months, y'all need to vote for werewolves because it's going to be hilarious. Oh, I I would love to talk about werewolves all month, but <laughs> anyway, um, thank you for all. Thank you uh, at 24th underscore doctor for your comment. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Kaylin. Uh, but that's that's going to do it for us on Scream. Thank you so much for sticking with us through this super <laughs> long episode. I can't believe how long we've gone, but I mean, I don't know. That's just the power of Scream. Yep. Got to spend a little extra time on it. Uh, we'll try to get back to <laughs> normal <laughs> length episodes for the rest of the month. Uh, but speaking of which, uh, next week we'll be on Scream 2, of course. Woot! So if you've not seen that, I believe that is also streaming on Peacock if you need a refresher. Otherwise, go rent it. It's another incredible sequel. Uh, but that's going to do it for us on Scream. So I'm Matt. And I'm Chris. And have a good night, horror fans. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed tonight's episode of Killer Horror Critic. If you'd like to scream with us some more, please subscribe on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at Killer From Space, as well as Instagram at Killer underscore Horror underscore Critic. New episodes release every Friday, so keep your eyeballs peeled, just the way I like them. Have a good night, horror fans.